BruceDurrenser.net, March 29, 2022. Bruce, who do you think wrote the words attributed to Jesus in the Bible? Recently, a reader sent me the following question. Hello, Bruce. Who do you think wrote the red letter words allegedly spoken by Jesus in the Bible? Do you think he actually did it at all? Thanks. So I'm going to read to you Bruce's words, but then any important things, I'll stop and give you my own thoughts. I was in the Christian church for 50 years. I was a college-trained evangelical pastor for 25 of those years. Saved at the age of 15 and called to preach two weeks later. I believe the Protestant Christian Bible is inspired, God-breathed, and without error, the fallible, authoritative word of God. I believed every word from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, to Revelation chapter 22, verse 21, was the very words of God to the instrumentation of men. I entered the ministry in the 1970s, believing in the preservation of the Bible. God, throughout history, preserved his word to make sure that humans always had the very words of God. For English-speaking people, the preserved word of God was the King James Bible, 1769 revision. All translations contained the word of God, but the KJV, King James Version, was the pure words of God. In the late 1990s, I started preaching from the English Standard Version, ESV, believing it was a faithful translation of the extant Hebrew and Aramaic manuscripts. I use other translations in my studies. I also read the message devotionally. According to my independent fundamentalist Baptist IFB colleagues, I have become a stinking, filthy liberal and in fact, I had simply adopted 20th century scholarship regarding the Bible. Instead of seeing one particular translation as the word of God, I came to see that all translations were the word of God, faithful reflection of the truth God wanted to convey. In my mind, the most important thing was for people to actually read the Bible, regardless of the translation. Sadly, most practicing Christians rarely, if ever, read the Bible. And those who actually study the Bible, a small percentage of church-going followers of Jesus ever carefully and thoroughly study the biblical text. Most Christians get their fill of the good book on Sundays, toss their Bibles in the back windows of their cars, in their trunks, or stuff them under their seats until the next Lord's Day. Many Bible translations print in red the worship that Jesus found in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I believe for the first 50 years of my life that the words printed in red were actually spoken by Jesus Christ himself. That said, as a pastor, I never elevated the red words to a higher, more important status than the black words. Why? Jesus as the second part of the Trinity was God the author of the Bible. Jesus, quote-unquote, spoke all of the words found in the Bible, not just the red words. My beliefs about the Bible, of, cor of course, were shaped by my IFB and evangelical upbringing and training. Here's the part where I'm going to start telling you my thoughts, because fasting your seatbelts about to get bumpy. Unfortunately, I was not told the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth about the nature and history of the biblical text. I, this week, came to that painful conclusion for myself as well. It was not only after I left the ministry in 2005 that I began to carefully re-examine my beliefs about the Bible. That's Bruce's experience. My experience was I left religion and church during the current COVID-19 pandemic 
and I am carefully re-examining my beliefs about the Bible presently. Bruce says, I found books written by Dr. Bart Ehrman, a New Testament scholar at the University of North Carolina, to be extremely enlightening and helpful, and no, Ehrman was not the only author I read. I can honestly say Bruce and I have done the same thing when it comes to the works of the awesome Dr. Bart Ehrman. Um, then he says, by 2008, it concluded that the Bible was not inerrant or infallible. Okay. Here's where it's going to be extremely bumpy. I don't believe that the Bible is completely God-inspired. I don't believe that the Bible is completely God-breathed. I don't believe that the Bible is errant. I don't believe that the Bible is without error. I don't believe that the Bible is infallible. Completely. Biblical inerrancy and biblical infallibility, I don't believe. Uh, I don't believe that the Bible is completely the authoritative word of God. I don't. Um, Because human beings can insert their flawed humanist H-U-N-A E-S-S E-S-S right so the Bible is not perfect it's imperfect and um, I don't think the Bible is completely the authoritative word of God I don't think the Bible is completely authoritative I don't believe completely in sola scriptura. I don't believe that the Bible is completely the word of God because humans are going to put their bigoted cultures, their bigoted customs into everything and the Bible is no different. I don't believe that every word from Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 to Revelation chapter 22 verse 21 are the very words of God. I don't believe that the instrumentation of men regarding the Bible is completely good. There's a lot of wrongfulness to what the men in the Bible have done. I don't believe that the King James Version of the pure words of God. I don't believe that the King James Bible is the preserved word of God. I don't believe that humans completely always have the very words of God. Uh, I don't believe that any translation of the Bible are completely faithful translations of the extant Hebrew and Aramaic manuscripts. I don't see any particular translation as the word of God. He says, by 2008, I conclude that the Bible is not inerrant or infallible. Again, 
I recently came to that conclusion. And then Bruce says, thus began the collapse of my faith. Yeah, my faith collapsed. My Christ-likeness never collapses. My Christ-consciousness never collapses. But my religious faith is completely destroyed. Then it says, then Bruce says, I continue to examine the central claims of Christianity, concluding that they could not be rationally sustained. That's how I feel recently. And then Bruce says, in November 2008, I walked out of the door of the Nay United Methodist Church of claims that I was no longer a Christian. Um, recently, I left Christianity because I am not a religious Christian. And then Bruce says, in early 2009, I embraced the agnostic atheist moniker. I can honestly say that I embraced the agnostic theist moniker. That would be me. And then he says, I learned that the Gospels are written by unknown authors decades after the death, death of Jesus. I learned that. I learned... When I say I learned that, I'm meaning that the conclusions that Bruce have come to reminds me of my current journey. Then he says, I learned that the authors of Matthew and Luke likely used Mark as the basis of their books. I learned that too. I concluded that it was impossible to believe that the words in red were actually spoken by Jesus himself. I do feel that way because he never wrote anything down. And you're telling me what he said, but there's no evidence that he said it himself. It would be a lot easier to go, okay, Jesus really said it because he said it himself. No one had to dictate what he said. In fact, from Jesus, I know that human beings are gonna mess up what I say, so I'm going to say it. I'll write down and make sure it's preserved. So the biblical Jesus, because the biblical Jesus, they put a lot of religiosity towards him. I'm not in favor of the biblical Jesus, but I'm in favor of the Jesus of history. The Jesus of history and the biblical Jesus are completely totally different people. One is about universality. The other is about promoting the religious right. I'm in favor of the, the universality Jesus. The, the real one. Not this religious right Jesus that they've conjured up. So when they so the word the words in red when it comes to the religious right Jesus that they call biblical Jesus, I go, no. But if you're gonna say the words in red attribute to the universality of Jesus, a Jesus that is open to people who are doubters and skeptics and Non-conformist. That's the real Jesus. Because Jesus' history was a doubter and a skeptic and a non-conformist to the religious world around him. 
Then it says, all we have are unknown authors saying Jesus said this or that. Now that is true. We have no written text by Jesus himself. That's true too. Any beliefs to the contrary are assertions, not facts. That is true. Is it possible that Jesus spoke the words in red? Sure. But is it also possible that the authors of the gospel are just writing down decades old oral stories or writing out and out fiction? That's possible. Again, but it's but it is also possible the authors of the gospel are just writing down decades old oral stories or writing out and out fiction. It's impossible. It's impossible for us to know if Jesus did or didn't say the red words. That's how I feel. I haven't seen any scientific evidence of any kind saying he completely said every word that's in red. The emailer asked if I believe Jesus existed. If the question, I mean, if the question is whether I believe the miracle work and divine Jesus of the gospel is real, the answer is no. That's what Bruce says. What I say is, I have not seen any scientific evidence for the miracle working divine Jesus of the Gospels. I I just put a question mark on that. I say I don't know. That's a unfilled blank for me. I haven't seen any data or facts to uh, fill the blank with either yes or no. So I, I, I just say I hope so. And that's all I'm going to say on that. I do, however, think a man named Jesus lived and died in first century Palestine. I agree with that. I do think that Jesus existed, the Jesus history. And I do believe Jesus existed. That he was likely a rabbi or po- uh, uh, likely a rabbi or apocalyptic preacher. Yeah, I feel that way too. I think Jesus was a rabbi or apocalyptic preacher. Um, um, and then he says that I am not any way a mythicist I would say I would say when it comes to being a mythicist, I don't know if these things are myths or historical. That's why I just say, I wouldn't say I'm a mythicist, um, because I don't know. What's mythical or historical regarding these claims that I just spoke about? So I just say, I don't know, and I put a question mark. But then he, but then I like that he says, I see in the gospels a historical figure lurking in the shadows of a work of fiction. Hmm. You know, I've wrestled with that my whole life, and I've come to the conclusion that I think the real Jesus has been fictionalized because if Jesus is so easily hijacked. Well, I'm like, okay, y'all, religious people are not telling the truth about Jesus. How can you have someone who is the most prestigious, the most famous, the biggest global icon in the world, Jesus, right? 
how is he easily hijackable? That lets me know that there has been fiction attributed to the real Jesus because how can he be the real Jesus and people could just turn you into Trump Jesus? I'm like, hmm. That's suspect and suspicion to me. So I would say that I agree with Bruce. I do see in the gospel historical figure lurking the shadows of a work in fiction. Um, simply put, Jesus existed. I think so too, as you know. But the miracles of supernatural worship to my fiction. Mm. I would say question mark. I don't know. I I I, I have not seen scientific evidence. That's not, that's my answer to every supernatural claim, every miracle claim, every divine claim, every deity claim, every Christ figure claim. I don't know. Question mark. I hope so, but I have not seen the scientific evidence. Again, say it for the last time. I will say this. I would really say when it comes to all deity claims, Christ figure claims, divine claims, supernatural claims, and um, miracle claims, I say haven't seen any scientific evidence. I don't know. Question mark. But I hope so. That's my answer. Um, okay, let me keep do this one. The Religion of Jesus. Sarah Lawing, redletterchristians.org. Over the past several years, Howard Thurman's writings have deeply impacted my spiritual life and have helped me see a more complete picture of the human experience particularly in how our inner landscape interfaces with how we interact with the world around us. I recently read his book, Jesus and the Disinheritance. I found myself pouring over many sentences multiple times to be sure I grasped, the, I grasped the meaning before moving on. It was only around 100 pages long, but it took me weeks to finish it. And it said that Martin Luther King Jr. always carried a, a copy of this book with him. And one could clearly see the, and, and one could certainly see the, through line and thought from Thurman to King. It's interesting and it is an interesting and challenging read. Thurman does well to remind the reader that the religion of Jesus, he does not call it Christianity, was born in a particular social and political context. In Jesus, in Jesus, a Jew being oppressed by Roman rule, one cannot separate political, social, and religious realities of his time from the teachings of Jesus. What Jesus was putting forth was a way of being in heart, mind, and body that is resistant of, but also lives in and engages with a world where inequality of all kinds exists. It was a divinely formed coping mechanism uniquely suited to help him and others survive with dignity and compassion in a world that offered him anything but these things. So how do we end up here and now? With many differing interpretations of the religion of Jesus that often obscure the beautiful life-saving truth about what Jesus saw for every person. I have heard that perhaps the worst thing that ever happened to Christianity was Constantine becoming a Christian. 
Suddenly, the teachings of Jesus were forced upon an empire and on the side of the politically powerful irony at its finest. And even for all the Apostle Paul's work to spread Christianity and plant churches throughout the region, from the moment the religion of Jesus passed another man, it has been the victim of an ongoing game of telephone. With each step removed from the source that has been co-opted by opinions, corrupted by power, bent to political agendas, and stretched so thin that in many instances it is hardly recognizable. The principles Jesus practiced, practiced and taught are quite simple, yet so difficult to practice consistently. Love God with all your heart, mind, body, and strength. Love one another. Love one another as I have loved you. Love your neighbor. Example, your other, the person you don't have much in common with, the one you have the most trouble loving and seeing a, as human. Um, the one you have the most trouble loving and seeing a human. Uh, the person you disagree with on the so-called quote-unquote important stuff. Jesus also taught these things. The kingdom of God is, a, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Because we live in a a society that is in favor of all gender pronouns, so am I, and in favor of LGBTQ plus gender and sex diversity, so am I, I say the royalty of heaven is at hand. The first will be last, the last will be first, blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek. I've come to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blinds, let the oppressed go free. Through the writings of Howard Thurman, I've learned what I've always known. The religion of Jesus has always been about desiring a more equitable and just society, which begins first in the soul of the individual. I cannot follow Jesus without claiming this way of being in my own life. Only then can I move outside myself to seek out ways to co-create a better world for all of humanity. So, I believe that the Jesus movement and Christianity are completely at odds with each other. One is about, hey, let's do life together with non-Christians. Let's not just have Christians do life together. While Christianity is more of, I persecute people who are unlike me. My criteria for Christians my curriculum of what a disciple, real disciple is. And we have otherism in the church amongst each other and we have otherism when it comes to those pagans that are not calling themselves followers of our Christ. See, I, I can't with that. I cannot... I can't with Christianity. I, I I cannot be Christian that way. Hell no. Okay. So okay, let's talk about briefly how I dare say that. Secularity and secularism are how I live my life. But I would say Christ consciousness and Christ likeness is what I see in the Jesus of history, not the 
Jesus of the Bible. Okay, it says medium.com. What does it mean to be sex positive? Expressing our society. Let me read seriously. Tongue tied. Medium.com. This is by Holly Bradshaw, September 28, 2020. What does it mean to be sex positive? Expressing our sexuality is bold and beautiful. There's still a good bit of confusion surrounding what it means to be sex positive. I'll admit that the term wasn't something I was familiar with until recently. Um, I could say I learned the term about a couple of years ago during the start of the COVID-19 pandemic when it was raging at its worst. I never heard it in my writing course and psych classes in college. I didn't either. Years ago when I was dating, no one ever called themselves sex positive. I would say years ago when I was unfortunately um, immersed in the world of sexual recklessness that the sexual abuse um, from my childhood um, threatened me. I didn't know, none, none myself, my partner, we didn't know what sex positive was, so we didn't call ourselves that at the time. And then she said, and then, um, I don't I don't know the person's, pro, I don't know Holly's uh, pronouns, so I'll just say, say Holly's name. Holly says, it wasn't until I started researching my various growing sexual desires that I first started reading about sex positive movement. I would say that that is also my experience. Um, Holly says, I've learned a lot about myself, my sexual exploration, including one, I'm not hardwired for monogamy. Antonio says, Antonio agrees. I'm not hardwired for monogamy either. Two, being sexually missive is maybe my biggest turn on. Well, that's what Holly says. I would say being sexually versatile, both sexually dominant and sexually submissive, is my biggest turn. Because Holly says being sexually submissive is maybe what Holly says my biggest turn on. I would say sexual versatility is maybe my biggest turn on. And three says, I'm sorry, Holly says, I have to remember just because I see a name that reminds of Warmington doesn't mean uh, give the assumed gender pronoun. So I see any differently, I'm going to say the person's name. Holly said, in three, Holly says, after some real life consensual experimentation with two of my women friends, I'm, I may be not completely straight. I would say that I am pansexual. I am pangender. I am queer. I am non-binary. And I practice solo polyamory. And I practice ethical non-monogamy. Here we go. Holly says, and most importantly, I've learned how to let go of a lot of repression or to find the courage to start sexually expressing myself. 
all those words are true for my life too i didn't have much encouragement to be sex positive when i was growing up i didn't either see my parents talk about sex is taboo difficult same here for me Exploring one's body and learning about physical pleasure through masturbation is never top conversation. I would say, for the most part, that was true for me. When it was rarely brought up in the Christian world, it was always from a hellfire perspective and guilt-laced indeed. Obviously, I reject that. I'm just talking about back then. Nakedness was embarrassing and inappropriate in all sex lives. That was absolutely true for me. Um, I've worked hard to let go of my negative self-judgment and shame surrounding sex. I would say the same thing for me. I see nakedness as liberating, um, appropriate, and healthy all around and physical pleasure masturbation is fantastic and exploring one's body is good and exploring the bodies of others consensually enthusiastically all good yeah but exploring one's body is all good too I'm just um I still have more work to do. I'm doing that work every day. But I'm worlds away from where I was. I'm so thankful for that when it comes to me. Some of the ways I like to express my sex positivity include publishing both research-based personal articles on sex relationships with the purpose of helping both myself and others. I'll be doing that in the future, by the way. Pursuing my sexual kinks and desires with others in a safe, consensual way. I'm doing that right now comprehensive sex education on anything from gender identity and sexual orientation to better orgasms and communication about sex romantic relationships. I'm doing that right now. Taking a, an active part in exploring my sexual journey. I'm doing that right now. We should be empowered to pursue our physical, mental, and emotional pleasure, whatever that may look like, as long as we aren't hurting anyone. That is the truth. And we should be in charge of how to express our sexuality, free of judgment from others and ourselves. I feel that what sex positivity is and what it isn't. Based on some of the articles we've been reading lately, I know there are still people out there who are confused about the phrase sex positive and where it comes from. Some may view the term as another catchy hashtag or unnecessary label. Some might say that we're simply lemons following yet another eyeball of decent social trends. I have to respectfully disagree. I don't think educating ourselves on human sexuality and attempt to promote healthy, safe, and sane behaviors while shifting the kind of cultural negativity around sex that often leads to repression, destructive relationships, and crimes of sexual violence makes us lemmings. That's how I feel. Or if it does, I guess you could say this lemming. Uh, ooh, Antonio, slow down. No, you're happy, but you still got to pronounce your words correctly and just. You know, poking healthy fun at myself. Or if it does, I guess you can sign this lemming up. <laughs> I agree with Holly. I do. As for where the label comes from, as we could go as far back as the 1920s and look at Wilhelm Reich's work. He's often given credit for the phrase when he stated, contrary to popular belief, that sex is positive and healthy, not dirty. Gabriel Castle Health Line. That's true. 
That is absolutely true. Writes with a psychoanalyst, a doctor of medicine, one of the most radical figures in the history of psychiatry. He doesn't screen someone who follows hurt mentality without doing his own research, lemming, etc. etc. Quite the opposite, actually. Sophia Tolk, Tolk, journalist, a journalist USA Today, says, Sex positivity isn't just another buzzword to look up on Urban Dictionary. It's a framework that counselors, medical professionals, universities are using to educate and talk with young people about issues related to sexuality and sexual health. Sex positive means being comfortable with one's own sexual identity and with the sexual behaviors of others for the purpose of promoting healthy, smart, safe, and sexual sex. Sophia's 100% correct. Sometimes when thinking about sex positivity as a social philosophical movement, it's easy to look at what not to do. It means not shaming mothers who are breastfeeding in public because God forbid anyone on the street see a female nipple or breast giving a child the miracle of life and doing what it was made to do. I agree. It means not blaming victims of sexual harassment or assault for any reason. No means no because no is a complete sentence. And just because our outfit shows lots of skin or we're strippers or we post erotic photos of ourselves online, that does not mean we should be charged with neglecting our own safety if someone tries to force themselves on us without enthusiastic 100% consent. Ali is right. Becoming a sex-positive society means that a woman can walk down the street in broad daylight fully nude and not be blamed for making herself susceptible to rape. In fact, I'm ready for the day where a gorgeous, naked woman can walk down the street and not be in danger of rape full stop. I know there will always be dangerous or crazy people in this world, and because of this, we have to always take precautions. But we can still work toward a better society where sex is seen as a healthy and natural part of being fully human. Like exercise, relationships, or watching Shit's Creek. Holly is right. It's S-C-H-I-T-T-S Creek is the show Holly's talking about. And Holly says, being sex positive, because I agree with Holly, I just, I, just, I just like agreeing with Holly. Being sex positive also means not being ageist when it comes to older people enjoying physical pleasure. Human beings are sexual creatures, and though our natural aging process can sometimes bring more challenges, there's no reason to ever judge an older woman for being a sexual being, whether she's 40 or 60 or 80 or beyond. Same goes for men with dirty old man quotation strokes. Is often thrown around with no clear reason other than he has sexual desires like everyone else. And then, um, I was right. I'm just in deep thought about what Holly's saying. I just go, yeah, that is true. Being sex positive means not yucking anyone's yums or making assumptions based on their desires slash fantasies. As long as my rape fantasy is safe, sane, and consensual, 
The simpler health expression is my submissive wire, hard wiring one that's a major turn on. Kali is correct. And if our sexual desire is actually having no sex at all, that should be fully acceptable as well. It's no, it's not one size fits all. I might be okay with something while my online friend isn't okay with it. The difference between sex positivity and sex negativity though is whether or not we decide to hurt others for liking what they like. That's yucking their yums. Again, I might be okay with something while my online friend isn't okay with it. The difference between sex positivity and sex negativity though is whether or not we decide to hurt our is whether or not we decide to hurt others for liking what they like. That's yucking their yums. To make it fully clear, we should not hurt others for liking what they like. We should all hate sex crimes and violent crimes. Though this list isn't all encompassing, I'll end with this. Sex positivity means not assuming that human sexuality in the various ways we as individuals feel like expressing it is inherently harmful, unnatural, dirty, or uncontrollable. Holly's right. Let love and let love and let love. I recently published an article about why I post my erotic photos on social media. Some of it has to do with the attention. Some of it has to do with the attention, sure. But so many of us enjoy attention. That's also part of the reason why we write or create art to bring attention to our ideas. If those of us who put our sexual selves out there, like me and my fellow sexuality writer, Julia, view that there's more to it than attention. It's an outlet for expressing our sexuality. It's a way for us to show that having a sex positive attitude means letting go of our shame and embracing our beautiful sexual selves. That was quite, it was all quite refreshing to read. Holly Bradshaw is a curious creature, pursuer of passion, unbeliever, and limiting. When lengthy bios, email me at hollybradshaw.writer at gmail.com. Last article. Radhika Raha Krishna, what being a sex positive feminist means to me on widening our thinking, language, and experiences with healthy sex. I found that a lot of cis hetero folk have a very narrow, toxic understanding of sex and sexual pleasure. They place too much emphasis on penetrative sex, orgasm, or the role of care in sex. Given the stigma, shaming of sex, and the stark absence of sex education in India, there's a very little public conversation about healthy sexual practices. And for a society that is grappling with complex questions around sexual consent and sexual violence, we understand and speak too little about sex and sexual pleasure. Even when folks understand sex positivity in theory, many still fumble with putting it to practice. So I decided to write this post of explaining what I mean when I say I am pro-sex, that's true for me too. And why you should be too in your own ways, I feel that way. So we may expand our thinking languages, languages and experiences of healthy feminist sex. I love healthy feminist sex personally. This is what sex positive feminism is for me, and hopefully it will open up some wider articulations and discussions around sexual liberation. F-O-L-X is folk. Folks is a clear, closer term for folks. Authors know some parts of this post are taken from several of my Twitter threads, meaning the author of this article. Sex positive feminism, also called pro sex feminism, began as a movement that could be traced back to feminists in the 1980s who began demanding that sexual liberation should be an important part of women's liberation. This demand arose large in opposition to anti-pornography feminists and what are now popular as feminists slash lesbian sex was late 1970s and early 1980s. Pro-sex feminists thus began voicing and censuring 
The patriarchal control of sexuality was the primary reasons for the continued subjugation of women. This gave us a language to understand the oppression of women and, in theory, empower us to liberate ourselves sexually. Yet, having a language to articulate sex positivity does not and should not mean there's just one way to be sex positive. Your sex positivity may very well look different from mine. I believe such disagreements about what different movements mean to us are healthy to have within feminism and social justice. This post is going to focus on what sex positivity means to me and if it helps you perhaps locate some meaning from experiences that would be enough for the purposes of this writing. I will part by part explore some concepts that are core to my understanding of sex positivity, how everyone can practice them in their everyday lives. Because feminism is not just textbook theory, it is everyday lived experience. And before I go any further, I am a sex positive feminist because I subscribe myself to sex positive feminism. I am into pro-sex feminism. That's why I call myself a pro-sex feminist. Now let's keep going. Virginity and the compulsory script of sex. The dominant rhetoric around sex views it as a context. The language of first base kissing, second base breast, third base genitals, and home run. Pino, vaginal penetrative sex makes sex seem like a race to an orgasm. There's supposed to be this scripted linear progression of what it should be done after what? During sexual intercourse. So we call everything we do before penetrative sex as foreplay and just the act of penetrative sex as sex. We place lesser value on making out than we do on penetrative sex. If you've not had specifically penis and vagina sex, you're called a virgin, which is a patriarchal and heterosexist way of thinking about sex. We obsess over whether a woman's hymen is broken or intact and classify women as virgins or non-virgins on the basis of it. Virginity is a social construct that, that commodifies women's bodies, but is culturally emphasized upon heavily. Brides in some traditions have to wear white on their wedding day to signify purity and virginity. Mary is called a virgin in Christian mythology. A woman's sexual purity is believed to be attached to her virginity, reducing a woman to her body. Her vagina giving men immense power over being able to transform women into non-virgins. Such an understanding of sex also raises experiences of lesbian, bisexual, trans women who are not considered to have lost their virginity, uh, that includes queer women too, unless they've had heterosexual sex with men. I'm explaining the evils of homophobia, biphobia, transphobia, queerphobia, lesbophobia, and heteronormativity. Beyond virginity in the past, some of my sexual partners, men as well as women, this is the author writing here, have been worried they're not quote unquote doing this right, have felt the need to shave their genitalia and have faked orgasms to pass off being quote unquote good at sex. This pressure in bed and all the other sexual settings comes in only when we think of sex as a performance to be carried out in specific ways in order to be quote unquote good at it. What does being good or bad at sex even mean. There's no right or wrong way to have sex as long as consent enthusiastically 100% is respected. 
Thin, flexible, hairless bodies are not quote unquote better at sex. We should focus on feeling good instead of doing it quote unquote right, on enjoying the experience instead of worrying if we're quote unquote good enough. Understand that orgasms are not the goal of sex. Pleasure in whatever way you may feel comfortable mutually expressing it is the goal of sex. Importance of care and sex. You can be caring without being in a romantic relationship. A toxic thing may many straight folks do is treat sexual partners differently from romantic partners, especially during quote unquote casual hookups without romantic commitments. Not having romantic feelings is used as a justification to not care about one's sexual partner. All women who have had no strings attached hookups have experienced this uncaring behavior, the ghosting, the aversion to cuddling after sex, the cult messages when you're not physically around each other, and the freaking out if you text a heart emoji or heart emoticon or say you miss them. Women, you deserve a partner who is honest, respectful, and affectionate, even if it's a quote-unquote casual scene. Hey, to all of the listeners listening, I am a honest respectful, affectionate, and caring sexual partner on the casual scene. You deserve to be with people who want to introduce you to their friends. Hey, to all the listeners listening, I am the kind of honest, respectful, affectionate, caring partner on the casual scene that would love to introduce you to my friends. Even people that I call my chosen family. Mm. It's beautiful to be excited to see your partner no matter how uncommitted you are. That's the kind of sexual partner I am. Don't accept trash treatment or shitty treatment or fucked up treatment or asshole treatment or the kind of treatment that will unnecessarily have you feeling like, damn, why am I no different than a pawn shop to this person, P.A.? Don't unnecessarily piss yourself off. It says, don't accept trash treatment from people just because you don't romantically like each other. No one ever has to deal with that when it comes to me, that's for certain. Care has nothing to do with romance. It's everything to do with being a decent human being. That's my motto. Fragilization of sex. Sex is considered more intimate, personal, secretive, and other forms of interaction. People are more reluctant to talk about their sex lives, into details about other sex lives, and more guided about and more guarded about who they share sexual intimacy with. But sex doesn't have to be more intimate than hugging or cuddling or having dinner with each other. Why should it be? It's as to a fragilization of sex. I've written before how this mystical fragilization of sex has harmful consequences like policing of women's sexuality, dealing affronts to women's sexual organs that's more heinous than other violence, and thus demanding harsher punishments for sexual violence. Mm. 
Very true. When it comes to my sex life, though, I'm open to the hugging, the cuddling, having meals with each other, and the movies, going movies with each other. Hey, I'm all open to that. I'm just saying. Here we go. The author says being a queer bisexual woman and having had many diverse but equally pleasurable and satisfying experiences of sex, I've come to learn that sexual preferences are varied but all equally valid. Yet heterosexual folks perform this toxic regulation of sex that benefits nobody. I dare say not even themselves. Consent and male pleasure. I try to post the sex positivity without flagging some of the nuances of consent. Consent, of course, is not limited to sexual interactions, but here I will focus on consent during sex. But I've said before, regulation of how we should have sex, what we value with the within the ambit of sex benefits nobody. I think the only quote right thing this way to have sex is by actively seeking and valuing consent, respecting bodily autonomy. Everything else is negotiable. Everything else is negotiable to conversations about bodies, preferences, and kinks without judgment and shaming. How do you do this? I want to spend a little space here explaining how one can practice this. I've heard from many men that, quote, unquote, stopping to ask for consent at each point during sex kills the mood. This is simply not true. A damn lie. Not only is consent mandatory, it's also very sexy. Very sexy. Men. Here's a crash course on how to keep consent sexy in bed and all the other sexual settings in less than five steps. Step one, it is mad sexy to politely ask, can I kiss you? Ask instead of sticking your tongue in someone's mouth because you read some imaginary nonverbal cues about them wanting it. If someone doesn't want it, they shouldn't have to say no. Not saying yes should be enough. Silence should be enough. Any other utterance should be enough. Unless someone explicitly in their conscious mind says yes, it's a no. Forget no means no. Follow yes means yes. Step two, this is not just for the first kiss. Continue taking consent at each step. I assure you, it is sexy to whisper in someone's ear, can I touch you? Do you like that? Do you want me to continue? Are you comfortable? Use your words. Use them sexily. Put it some Step three, establish clear boundaries and conversation. Talk about your boundaries beforehand. What are no-nos? What are hell no-nos? What are fuck no-nos? What you're into. This way you can still explore new stuff, new shit, and keep the quote-unquote kink that everyone is so worried about losing if you have to take consent at every step. There are also web apps for this if you need. You enter yours and your partner's email addresses and they send you both a list of questions about things you're comfortable with in bed and all the other sexual settings. You can both independently take the questionnaires and they'll share your responses with each other. You can then have a conversation about them. Hey, this all applies to group sex orgies as well. Step five. There isn't even a step five. I wasn't lying when I said less than five steps. It's that simple. But if you still think this is too difficult, then deal with it like an adult and learn. 
because you know what's significantly more difficult? The experience of having consent violated during sex. These are all equally applicable to relationships. Being in a romantic relationship with someone that's not entitled to their body, sex positivity does not mean that you have to be up to sex anytime your partner desires. Consent needs to be taken at all stages and all forms of sexual interactions, irrespective of the relationship you share with your partner. How is it that men are self-proclaimed experts in reading women's bodies when it comes to catching on to quote obvious nonverbal cues? She definitely wanted it, but are suddenly naive puppies when it comes to catching on to the signs of a woman's obvious discomfort. Women have spent centuries in discomfort for the pleasure of men. Women have spent centuries in discomfort for the pleasure of men. So even the possibility of a woman's discomfort should be reason enough to cut a man's pleasure short. Male pleasure should only include those actions that live up to a very, very high standard of explicit consent. If it is off-putting for you to continuously take consent, please reflect on what it says about yourself if you think that your mood is more important than someone's safety and comfort. Please reflect on what it says about your views on sex if it is a fun. Please reflect on what it says about your views on sex if it is fun from the one person involved. Consent is sexy when you do it right. Sexy when you do it right. Whom is sex positivity for? Whom is sex positivity for? As a survivor of rape and sexual violence, I'm a survivor of those things too. I have a complicated relationship with sex, me too. It is an experience that with consent respect, it is an experience that with consent respected like described above has been pleasurable and positive for me, but when consent has been violated, has been a source of great trauma, fear, and activity. I identify with those things. Being sex positive does not mean that it's about having a simple, uncomplicated relationship with sex. It includes and recognizes all the pain and regret that women and people that are not women may have experienced during sex. Me too. Sex positivity also recognizes that sex is not desirable for everybody. There may be many reasons for why some folks are indifferent to sex, are interested in sex, are false by sex, or scared of sex. These are all valid even if you don't relate to understand them. Some folks identify as asexual, some folks identify as aromantic, and respecting those purposes is a part of sex positivity. For me, sex positivity does not mandate body positivity. While it's liberated to love yourself and your body, and you should all try to, that's true. Um, there are many valid reasons why folks feel ashamed of or uncomfortable with their bodies. Women and trans queer folks are conditioned from a young age to dislike their bodies and, and to attain unrealistic standards of beauty to be, and to attain unrealistic standards of beauty to be likable. But you do not have to love your naked body for others to respect you better in all the sexual But you do not have to love your naked body for others to respect you better in all the other sexual settings. Everyone deserves respect. Sex positivity recognizes intersectionality. It recognizes that people hold no identities of gender, sexuality, caste, religion, secularism, class, ability. For instance, as a Brahmin queer woman, I'm privileged through my caste identity, but face some oppressions through my marginalized sexuality having such identities that are often at odds with each other means there are bound to be power dynamics in many sexual interactions so we need sex positivity as a framework to be able to critique and analyze what is happening for instance when cis gay men cisgender gay men refuse to have sex with trans men when professors have sex with students 
when older men repeatedly seek out sex with significantly younger women. I want a sex positive feminist that recognizes and is here for women like me and women first from me. Where survivors of sexual violence, where sexual folks, where aromantic folks, the folks who find it difficult to love themselves and their bodies, the folks who are still healing from the trauma of sex, that's me. Uh, let's discard the language of sex that makes it feel like a football game to be won, rather than a mutually consensual pleasurable experience. Let's drop this script and this fixed pattern of sex and these two progress from one based on another. Let's be caring of our partners. Let's value each other's consent and respect each other's bodily autonomy during sex and otherwise. Let's not fetishize sex to be more valuable than other forms of interaction. Let's open ourselves up to the idea that sex like people is fluid. That, accord, that according to me, is what sex positivity is all about. Acknowledgement is acceptance in the many diverse ways diverse folks experience sexual pleasure without the pressure to perform to or perform in a particular way. That is sexual liberation for all. That is sexual liberation after all. I mean to say, and um, I think body positivity is good. Um, I'm, I'm into sex positivity too, as y'all know. I would say I am growing in loving and appreciating, liking, respecting, and honoring for my body. That's a daily work in progress, like healing from the trauma, sexual abuse as well. So, everywhere in this article, I strongly agree with 100%. And uh, thank you all for allowing me to share these thoughts with you.